And the people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes. And when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled, and the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some outlying parts of the camp. Then the people cried out to Moses, and Moses prayed to the Lord, and the fire died down. So the name of that place was called Taborah, because the fire of the Lord had burned among them. Taborah means burning. So we've come in our structure of the book of Numbers. Remember, we are going with a geographical structure of the book. The first 10 chapters, we were at Mount Sinai. And then for chapters 11 and 12, we have a travel section. And we're going to arrive at Kadesh in chapter 13. And then there will be one more travel portion, and then they will arrive in Moab. So uh, we have... It was pretty significant last week that they departed from Mount Sinai after a year there, and they're on their way to the promised land. And as we went through those first 10 chapters, it almost became tedious, and we almost skipped over the words that said, as the Lord said to Moses, so the people of Israel did. And it's kind of jumped right over that, because you figure, well, of course, yeah, they did what God told them to do. But in Numbers 11, things take a very drastic turn for the worst. And you see that they are grumbling. They're complaining. They're murmuring. Murmur is a good word because it's, it's onomatopoeia. You remember that from poetry class, which is a word that is meant to sound like what it means, right? So pow is onomatopoeia. So is murmur. Because when you're grumbling under your breath, what does it sound like? Murmur, murmur, murmur. They were murmuring, right? They were grumbling. You can kind of hear that one too, grumbling against the Lord. In the hearing of the Lord, it says. By the way, anywhere you complain is in the hearing of the Lord. So let's just get that out of the way. They're grumbling. And unfortunately, this complaining is going to become the defining attribute of this generation and is going to get them in a lot of trouble. And this story that we go through in this chapter and the next is an inversion of what we saw in Exodus on their way to Mount Sinai, where they needed water and God provided water. They needed food and God provided bread. And those were all very positive stories. They fought the Amalekites and they won. In, the, in this book, all those things are going to happen, but it's going to end badly because of their reaction to what was going on. Now, verse 1 does not specify what they were complaining about. There's two different instances of complaint in this chapter. The first one is only three verses, and the other one is from 4 to the end. So we don't know what this first one was about, but here is my speculation. It doesn't say, I just read it to you. But here's my speculation. The fire consumed the outlying areas of the camp. The outlying areas of the camp is where the unclean went. The lepers, those that were sick, those that had diseases that could be communicated, that's where the fire burned. They had just now, remember in the last chapters, instituted the laws about clean and unclean, and they had driven the unclean out, not driven them out, they had taken them out. Jesus would get the people in a lot of trouble for abandoning these people, but you're contagious, you can't be around everybody. We understand that very well. I'll bet you that these people that were unclean and outside the camp thought they had a bum deal and started complaining about it. We can't be certain because that's not what it says, but you think, why would God burn the outlying portions of the camp? Now, the theological reason would be that the thing that is the least holy, far away from the presence of the Lord, is what needs to go first. But these are people, remember, and we serve a God of love. I think what's going on is the Lord is saying, it doesn't matter if you are unclean or done hard by or dealing with sickness or whatever, you still don't have an excuse to complain. 
So that's a thing that'll preach on its own. Just remember, just because you have a reason to complain that other people agree is a legitimate reason to complain, it still kindles the anger of the Lord. There are some people who take every opportunity they can to complain. If they have a chance, they will. Kind of like if you have a guy at work, that if he has a reason to miss work, he's going to miss work. So you could come in. It's like, yeah, but I have just a good enough excuse to not come in, so I won't. Some people do that with complaining. They say, if I have half a reason that somebody else will agree, I'll complain. And in the church, you can let people get away with that. Well, you know, she's, she's dealing with a bad relationship with her kids, so we'll just let her talk. And then she becomes a, a bad influence in the church. Or he's having a tough time at work, sure, but now all he does is complain about it. And it brings everybody else down. So, yeah, the Lord does not permit complaining from anybody. It's not right. After all that God had done for them. And it brought the fire down on them. Now this chapter goes, or this section goes quickly. Where they complained, they were punished. They went to Moses and repented and he interceded for them. And the fire stopped. But as we're going to see, this chapter, or these three verses, are just the opening salvo of this conflict between God and his chosen people in the book of Numbers. This is just the first time they complained. They complained so many times, you're going to lose track. We would complain and murmur against the Lord and against Moses. And this chapter is going to give us two parallel tracks of lessons to learn about murmuring and grumbling and complaining. One is for leaders and one is for followers. So you're going to see what was happening in the greater congregation. And that applies to all of us. And then you're going to see what happened to Moses and the conversation he was having with God, which applies if you're a leader, especially in the church. Some of you, I'm sure, are called to that kind of ministry. Dads, this is for you. Moms over your children. If you're a boss at work, if you're in any kind of leadership, this is for you. And over all of this, we're going to be hanging Philippians chapter 2, verse 14 through 15. Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Do everything without grumbling or disputing. Whether you're in charge or not, difficulties are going to come. Don't complain. Don't murmur. Don't grumble. Trust that God hears you and that he's going to sort it out. That's the first one. This next one is going to take a little longer. And it's really astonishing the thing they're going to complain about. Verse 4. Now the rabble, underline that, the rabble that was among them had a strong craving. And the people of Israel also wept again and said, oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing. Did it really cost nothing? The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic... But now our strength is dried up and there's nothing at all but this manna to look at. You know, this miraculous heaven bread. <laughs> now the manna was like coriander seed and its appearance like that of bdellium. The people went about and gathered it and ground it into handmills, or beat it in mortars and boiled it in pots and made cakes of it. Point being, you can do all kinds of things with manna. And the taste of it was like the taste of cakes baked with oil. One commentator compared what it means there by cakes baked with oil. It's like donuts. The idea is delicious. When the dew fell upon the camp in the night, the manna fell with it. Okay, so the first complainers we have in verse 4 are the rabble. This is the Hebrew word asafsuf. 
It's another kind of murmur sort of word. So these, these riffraff, these asafsuf, this mixed multitude. This is probably the group of Egyptians that had come with them in Exodus 12, 38. They had known Egypt their whole life. Now, they were the instigators and the first ones to complain, but Israel does not get off the hook here because it says the people of Israel also complained and they complained about food. This is that famous complaint. Anne was singing the Keith Green song when we walked in tonight. So you want to go back to Egypt. Like the leeks and the onions. Just like in Exodus 16. Now, they complained in Exodus 16, but this time is different. Exodus 16, they had run out of food. They had nothing to eat. There was no water. There was no food. But this time is different. Manna falls with the dew every morning. And they would go out and it was in these great long sheets on the ground. And they would scoop it up every morning like clockwork. There it was. So this is not a complaint about quantity, meaning we don't have enough food. This is a complaint about variety. We only have one kind of food. They're bored. That's why they're complaining. They're bored with their food. None of you have ever been bored with your food before, haven't you? Now, Moses points out their mistake here. This is why we have verses 7 through 9. Moses is saying, now, when they say all we had to look at is this useless manna and we're getting thin here, Moses goes, no, no, it was beautiful, right? It was shining like bdellium, which is a precious gem. It was delicious, tasted like cooked with oil. And it was hearty. It was enough to sustain them every single day. Psalm 78, 25, the psalmist said it was the bread of the angels. A bunch of Christian writers who are absolutely no fun at all come in and say, no, we know angels don't eat food. And he was just using this to be poetic and stuff. It's like, well, it says the food of the angels. So we'll just leave it at that. How do you know angels don't eat food, by the way? Anyhow, moving on. The only reference to angels and food is this is their food. How foolish and yet how common to be bored with God's miraculous provision. How foolish is that? We hear someone else do it and we go, you got to be kidding me. We hear about some Wall Street banker who gets caught trying to get a few extra million dollars. and We go, some people will just never be content. But when you do it, oh, you've got good reasons to become bored with miraculous provision. You've, you've seen this, especially if you've had kids. All of you have been kids. Mom, can we go to McDonald's? No. What does mom say? We have food at home. And what do your kids say? I don't want the food at home. Or your teenage son opens up a refrigerator that is bursting at the seams and says, Mom, there's nothing to eat in here. And then she comes in and does what my mom used to do. You can have some of this and you can have some of that. Make a little pile. I'm like, I don't want any of that. I don't want, what do you want? I don't know what I want. I just want something else. This is what they're doing with the, the, the dew bread. The bread, they wake up in the morning and they go, all right, honey, go collect the manna. Go get the manna for the day. That's too much. We'll never be able to finish that. Dump it out. We'll be back tomorrow. And they're bored. Oh, look, miracle heaven bread again. Now, when they were desperate, this manna was, oh, can, what is this? Can you believe God has provided this? We're going to tell our children about this forever and ever. We're going to write songs. Have you ever tasted anything so delicious and wonderful? But a year later, they're bored. 
When we're desperate, God's blessings overwhelm us. Ever been to the place where you're praying that that auto draft in your bank account doesn't happen for two more days? Lord, I know it's supposed to happen on the 29th, but God, I've got $6.18 in my bank account, and I, I, if, if it drafts, oh Lord, please don't. And then somebody gives you enough money, or it doesn't go through, and you're dancing, thank you, Jesus, praise the Lord, hallelujah. But then later on, you get a little money, you get a little bit, and your threshold of what's acceptable gets higher and higher and higher. It's funny, I, every now and then you'll hear somebody in the news and they'll, they'll give some number, some politician or celebrity, give some number that they can't imagine anybody living on that. And it's like, that's like twice what I make. It's like, this is, what, do you, what planet do you live on that this is not enough for you? But that's what happens, isn't it? As, it? as it gets higher and higher and higher, you can't imagine not having a car. You can't imagine not having a comma in your bank statement. You can't imagine this. That's what happens. You become greedy for more. Or maybe it's like, oh, God, I need a job. Please give me a job. Lord, give me a job. And then God gives you a job. And you're celebrating, praise Jesus. And then six months later, I don't really feel fulfilled at this job. God's like, I beg your pardon? You weren't fulfilled when you didn't have a job. And now you're complaining about the one you do have? We become greedy. We fall. Do you know why? Because we are not actively content. It's a phrase I want us to hang on tonight. Active contentment, meaning I am at all times seeking to be content. I'm going to try now to be content with what I have. 1 Timothy 6, 8. Do you know what God's threshold for what enough for you is? About to break some hearts in here. Say, God, I don't have enough. You know what God says is enough? Food and clothing. What about a house? Food and clothing. Sleep under the stars. Some people love to do that. What about a car, Lord? Food and clothing. But Lord, they've got more than me. Food and clothing. But God, my dad had more than me when he was my age. Food and clothing to be content. If you got something to eat and something to wear, you're good. And the thing is, we are so wealthy, so inexpressibly, aboundingly wealthy today. Even our poor people have iPhones and compared to other places in the world, right? And we say, oh, just these destitute people. Now, folks are having a hard time. But Paul says food and clothing. What happens when you're not actively content and you start to get bored with the blessings that you got before, but you're just like, ah, it's something else. I don't want manna again. It's like it's manna or nothing. Well, that's not fair. What's not fair is me giving you the angel's food. That moment when you start to get bored and, and take God's blessings for granted, to feel entitled to what God gives you, that's when the devil starts to feed you distorted memories of life under sin. Remember cucumbers? Oh, this man would taste so good with cucumbers. And, and leeks. Yeah, those leeks were great. Oh, we could just catch fish anytime we wanted. And, and we, you know, we were, I mean, they were, Mount Sinai was right on the, on the Red Sea. So maybe they fished. Who knows? Now they're in the wilderness and they can't. Just, we could get fish anytime we wanted. We didn't have to pay for it. God's like, yeah, you did. You paid with your blood. You paid with your children being thrown into the river. Yeah, but just, we had, just, I'm looking past all of that. But that's what the devil does. He takes you back and he makes you nostalgic for life under sin. Because he thinks the thing that you're bored with now was better back then. 
Don't you remember back when you were bar hopping? Wasn't that fun? You felt fulfilled, man. That wasn't boring. It was something different every night. Variety is the spice of life. And man, you, had, you never knew. One night you were going to meet some girl. One night you were going to black out and wake up. You didn't know where. And then the other night you're going to get in a fight with somebody. And you met a baseball player that one time. Yeah, that, those were the days. You forget all of the hangovers. You forget all the heartbreaks. You forget that time you got put in a paddy wagon. You forget all that. He makes you nostalgic for those days. That's what the devil does. Don't you want to go back to Egypt? Wasn't it better in Egypt? And now right here, it's like, they're not saying let's go back. They will say that later. But what we'll do is say, no, I'm not saying I want to go back to the days when I was on drugs. But I, I had a lot of fun. Met some great people. I've heard people say that to me. It's like, ah, yeah, I mean, don't do it. Like when I was a young man, I played guitar, I long hair, went to rock and roll shows three or four times a week. And I'd meet these older men and some of them were, most of them were godly Christian men. And most of them would say, don't get too caught up in that stuff, man. There's nothing in it. You don't want anything to do with it. I'm like, okay, got it. But every now and then I'd meet one and say, oh man, those were the days, man. I, I got to play with so-and-so and I went to this club and I partied with this guy. I mean, it was all sinful, but ah. What do I hear as a 17-year-old kid? I'm here like, well, that sounds awesome. I'm like, yeah, well, you'll regret it when you're 40. I'm like, I'm not going to live till I'm 40. <laughs> Jesus is coming back. That's just, that's what he does. We forget the pain. We forget the shame of sin. We do this with relationships, don't we? She's no good for you, bro. Yeah, but she loved me. No, she didn't. Y'all fought all the time. Yeah, but it's because we cared. Don't call her, man. Well, maybe, she, maybe she'll just want to talk. We forget all that and we convince ourselves. This is the next step. Not only are we nostalgic, the devil convinces you that God is keeping something from you. It's like, I know that I should follow Jesus, but it's only fair to admit, I mean, I don't get to get rich like everybody else. I'm doing the right thing, but you know what? If I wasn't, if I was out there, man, I'd probably be a billionaire by now. The devil goes, yeah, you would. You'd be a rock star. You'd be famous. You would have got that gig if Jesus hadn't come in and ruined everything. And you would never say it like that. That's what goes on in your head. And the Lord comes in and he says, guys, you were slaves. You were a slave to sin. Don't you remember how every night you were, you were crying and you were desperate and you were punching holes in the wall and you're like, why, can't, why isn't any of this working? Why am I so lost? Why am I so desperate? That time you thought about well, who would care if I even crashed this car right now? And the Lord, don't you remember that? But then the rabble comes in and says, but at least we had onions. Onions? Onions. Leeks. Melons. Silly when you compare that to liberty and manna and deliverance. That's what happens on the days when we have everything we need. We or the rabble around us. Now the rabble, they were part of the children of Israel now but they were still thinking and acting like Egyptians because they were new to this. And this is what happens in the church. We got to make sure who you're letting influence you. Just because somebody was somebody out there when they get saved and come in here, they are on the bottom most rung. They need to learn. Not because we're better than them, but because they need to be discipled and sanctified like all of us. This is, just isn't right. This isn't fair. That's when you, Christian, have got to step in and say, no, no, God is always fair. The devil is tempting you. Don't tell me that. I don't want to hear that right now. You need to hear this right now. Instead of saying, yeah, I, I mean, I guess you're right. Don't let the, the rabble convince you. Because then what the devil does is he says, don't you want all that? Aren't you missing all that? Don't you want it? He convinces you the way to get there is sin. 
And that doesn't even make any sense. I don't feel fulfilled in life. I better go sin to get it. That doesn't track, but that's how the devil gets us. The devil's temptations are not logical. They feel logical, but they're not. This sequence that we've gone through is, is foolish, but it's so easy to go down that road. And it starts with complaining, grumbling over what you have, murmuring in the hearing of the Lord. Say, I don't want to go back. I never want to go back. That was the song they sang, the prisoners, when we were in uh, St. Clair. That was an awesome song. That was like, it was like heavy 80s metal with a four-part quartet and gospel piano and a rap break. It was the craziest song. But the song was, I'm not going back. And they weren't talking about prison. They were talking about that old life. That's the attitude you've got to have. I don't want to go back. Then stop complaining. Because complaining is the first step on that road. It's you standing underneath the tree of knowledge of good and evil and listening to the devil talk to you. Keep watch on your complaining mouth, Christians. Verse 10. Moses heard the people weeping throughout their clans. Weeping. Weeping because all they had was manna. Childish. Talk about children of Israel. Everyone at the door of his tent. I didn't use that again. That was good. And the anger of the Lord blazed hotly. And Moses was displeased. Moses said to the Lord, Why have you dealt ill with your servant? And why have I not found favor in your sight, that you lay the burden of all this people on me? Did I conceive all this people? Did I give them birth? That you should say to me, Carry them in your bosom as a nurse carries a nursing child to the land that you swore to give their fathers? What am I to get meat to give to all this people? For they weep before me and say, Give us meat that we may eat. I am not able to carry all this people alone. The burden is too heavy for me. If you will treat me like this, kill me at once. If I find favor in your sight, that I may not see my wretchedness. This is not Moses' finest hour. Now, he's not 100% in the wrong here, but he's definitely complaining. He's doing the same thing, but at least he's taking it to God and not just murmuring. Leadership is a lonely thing at the best of times. A leader always has to have just a step back from everybody else so that he can lead. If you don't have that, you'll run into trouble. But when you are leading people who are satiated, they have everything they need, but they let boredom and laziness get to them, and they come weeping to Moses and said, look at this. Yeah, it's manna. This is all we have. Yeah, but you get it every day. You have as much as you want. You literally can collect it until it goes away in the sun. I want something else. My poor children are only going to know manna. This isn't even going to last that long. It's like, uh, like a month to the promised land. <laughs> Moses, you're so heartless. And Moses complains to God. It can be devastating when you're doing all the right things for a group of people and they start complaining to you. Isn't that hard? When you're maybe dad, you're, you're doing your best and you come home and maybe your wife is like, we just never have enough around here. And you're like, I've been out breaking my back at work every day. Or when you're leading your team at work and you're, you're pulling extra time and you're trying really hard to make it work for everybody. I used to have to deal with this when I'd set the schedule. I'd spend a long time getting that schedule because I knew this guy didn't like this and this person didn't like that and they couldn't work this day. So I, I get like this finely tuned instrument. This is the only way it's going to work. And then guys call and want to yell at me because I scheduled them on a, on a Thursday or something like that. It's like, I, I'm trying my best here. How much more the Lord or Moses? He complains to God. He said, God, why do I have to carry this burden myself? I didn't want this. You showed up in a burning bush and made me do it. Now, this is not entirely true. He has Aaron. 
He has the Levites and he has the 70 elders who ate in the presence of the Lord, but they've been pretty much useless, haven't they, up to this point? Last thing Aaron did was build a golden calf for everybody. But what Moses does that is right is he puts the thing back in God's hands. I had an English teacher, my 12th grade English teacher named Ms. Dallenberg. Whenever somebody would complain or ask a question that was just a little silly, she'd go, I ain't your mother. She didn't even have that accent, but that's how she would say it. I ain't your mother. That's what Moses is saying here. I ain't their mamas. I'm not their mom. I, I don't have to carry these people around and nurse them like a newborn baby. But this is what they're making me do because they're acting like children. But he wasn't. He is right. That he, this is not his duty. But even if he was their mother, <laughs> he says, I have no power to give them what they want. Even Where am I going to get meat from? Maybe they thought Moses could just snap his fingers and make it happen. Maybe they had a very loose understanding of his, his uh, audience with God. And if it wasn't for his pout there in verse 15, just kill me, God, then maybe we could use this as a good example of servant leadership, which is to say, Lord, this is what they need. I can't do it. It's on you. That attitude is right, but the bad attitude is wrong. Because Paul would say, Paul would say in 2 Corinthians 2, 16, who is sufficient for these things? Who is sufficient to be the minister of a new covenant? Who's sufficient to go out and preach the gospel? He says, because we're not peddling the gospel. I'm not trying to find a buyer. I'm just declaring the truth and letting the chips fall where they may, letting the Holy Spirit do his thing. He says, who is good enough for this job? That's the truth. If you're going to do it right, you won't be good enough. It is entirely true that leaders have no power to give anything to anyone. God's people are God's responsibility. So Moses, in his intercession here, in coming to God and saying, God, I need help, is absolutely the right call. But Moses' problem was that he took it personally. He was identifying a little too much with his role over these people, and a little not enough with God and as the actual leader. Similar thing in 1 Samuel chapter 8, when the people come to Samuel and they say, Behold, you are old. Can't wait somebody say that to me. <laughs> Behold, you are old and your sons are no good. Maybe not that part so much. Your sons are no good. We want a king. And Samuel's outraged. He's like, you've got God leading your government and you want a king? And he goes and he prays about it. And God tells him in 1 Samuel 8, 7, he says, Samuel, this isn't about you. This is about me. They're rejecting me. And as a leader, if you can get that right, that you are standing in for God, that when they reject you, it's not you, you're able to bear that burden a lot better. That's what Jesus said, right? He said, they're going to hate you because they hated me. Why do people in this country hate Christians so much? They don't. They hate God and you're God's people. You can take it a little less personally in that case and have a little more sympathy for those people. A leader has to be able to do that. A leader in any capacity, but especially in the pastorate or as a leader in the church, has got to be able to conduct himself in such a way that he basically cancels out in the equation. As much as possible, he vanishes and it is God working through him so that when the people deal with you, they're really not dealing with you, but you have become a stand-in for the Lord. And that is not permission to be abusive and domineering in God's church. It's the exact opposite. Is that you so vanish into the Christ life. I'll use Oswald Chambers' term there. The Christ life is so alive in you. There's not enough left of you for people to hang their hat on. 
You're just doing what God has said. And in that point, when someone rejects you, you're heartbroken, but you know ultimately it's not about me. This is just one more person rejecting Messiah Jesus. That is invaluable. I've had a lot of, a lot of cases, unfortunately, over the years where you pour your heart and soul into somebody and then they throw it in your face, blame you, and then walk away. Where somebody's having serious trouble and you're with them and you, you take their phone calls, you answer their emails, you, you listen to them, you cry with them, you hug them, you hold them, you pick them up and take them places, you bring them stuff when they need it. And then one day they, get a, they call you up and they just chew you out because you never loved me and you never cared and I've had it with you and don't ever call me again. And then they start telling other people about you. That's hard, man. There are a few things more difficult than that. Somebody that you love you haven't just done the right thing. You love this person. You've given everything to this person. And they reject you flat out. It's a hard thing. And it will continue to happen to me. Because I represent Jesus Christ. And Jesus says, I came not to bring peace, but what? A sword. To divide. Because when people come across Jesus, you, you don't get halfway with Jesus. Jesus is either this way or that way. Narrow road or wide road. And if you are going to serve Jesus Christ, same thing is going to be true of you. That's why you've got to take yourself out of it as much as you can. Like John the Baptist said, he must increase, but I must decrease. John the Baptist was the most popular man in Judea. But when Jesus showed up, everybody forgot about him like that. That's what happens. And that, isn't that a glorious thing? Isn't that liberating to know that when I lead, it's not me, it's Jesus? And you can't just say that, by the way. You can't just do whatever you want and then blame it on Jesus. It's that daily prostrating yourself before the Lord, saying, not I, but Christ. No longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, it's Jesus. It's Jesus. It's difficult to lead complainers. So followers, don't complain. Just don't be that person. Don't be somebody who is so sensitive that your leader has to take care of your ego. <laughs> you don't want to be that person. You make it easy for them. Because that makes it easier for everybody. And as Paul said in 2 Corinthians 3, verse 6, just a couple of verses down from the one before, he said, it is Christ who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. Who is sufficient for these things? Nobody. But Christ has made us sufficient. Keeping going now, verse 16. So Moses has prayed. The people complained. Then the Lord said to Moses, Gather for me 70 men of the elders of Israel, whom you know to be the elders of the people, and officers over them, and bring them to the tent of meeting, and let them take their stand there with you. And I will come down and talk with you there. And I will take some of the spirit that is on you, and put it on them, and they shall bear the burden of the people with you, so that you may not bear it yourself alone. And say to the people, Consecrate yourselves for tomorrow, and you shall eat meat, for you have wept in the hearing of the Lord, saying, Who will give us meat to eat? For it was better for us in Egypt. Therefore the Lord will give you meat, and you shall eat. You shall not eat just one day, or two days, or five days, or ten days, or twenty days, but a whole month until it comes out of your nostrils and becomes loathsome to you, because you have rejected the Lord who is among you and have wept before him, saying, why did we come out of Egypt? When you complain against God, he says, you have rejected your Lord, because you're no longer treating God as good, and you're saying it was better before Jesus got involved. I wish I had never heard the gospel. I could have just gone about my life and not have to worry about all this stuff. Now here, God is promising to give both groups 
the leaders and the followers, what they were asking for, which is astonishing to me. In spite of their complaints, God's going to do it. For Moses, he says, I'm going to pour out my spirit on 70 elders to help you. And for the people, I'm going to send meat. <laughs> you, want, you want meat? I'll give you meat. I'll give you meat till you're sick of it. Now, Moses is not accused of sin by the Lord here, as the people are going to be. But neither one of these groups is going to be exactly thrilled with the gift that God gives them. And the people, in particular, are going to suffer for this. God often gives people what they ask for, even if it's not in their best interest. Like the king of 1 Samuel 8. When Samuel anointed the king and said, I'm going to get you a king... He gave a big, long speech about all the terrible things that king was going to do. He's going to take your daughters. He's going to take your sons. He's going to take you to war. He's going to tax you. He's going to put you to hard labor in order to build his palaces and his monuments. You're not going to enjoy this. And you're going to cry out to God, and it's going to be too late because you've already gotten what you wanted. And he said, and to prove that this is true, God's going to do a sign. And God sent a thunderstorm down and ruined their new crops. And it wasn't really good for them. Their kings are the ones that got them in trouble. The people rebelled pr plenty of times in Judges, but God brought them back. But when they had a king, when one man took that responsibility upon himself for the whole nation, his actions took on far greater significance. Now, getting what you want from God is not always a curse, but permission is not always desirable. All I want to do with this part here is to make you pause just a little bit. If you don't have what you want, I mean, pray and ask the Lord. But also consider that perhaps there is a reason why God has not given it to you. That's something to remember, especially if you're not coming out of sincere desire, but out of complaint and grumbling and murmuring. God, I'm fed up with this house. We need a new one. That's not a good attitude. An attitude that says, Lord, thank you so much for providing this house for us. It is getting a little tight and it's pretty expensive to manage. I ask that you would provide it. Now, in that case, God can say yes and no but you are ready to receive whatever the answer is. But a grumbler and a complainer will never be able to receive it. Consider the prodigal son, Luke 15, 12. Give me my inheritance now, dad. When was somebody supposed to get their inheritance? When the father died. Dad, I wish you were dead. I wish you were dead. I would rather you be dead and me have the money. Now, part of the reason you waited until the father died is because guys of that age could not handle that kind of money. And as that young man demonstrated, he couldn't handle it. He wasn't ready. And it turned out the father had been wise to keep it from him. He was eating with the pods of the pigs. He squandered the inheritance. 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 7 says that God is restraining the Antichrist. He's restraining the work of evil in the world. And the beginning of the last days, the beginning of that tribulation is going to be when God removes his restraining hand. Now you read Revelation. There's plenty of direct supernatural intervention. But most of the judgment of the book of Revelation is God turning people loose. Imagine if there was no more mitigating influence upon the wicked men of the world. That's the great tribulation. In fact, some people have said that the tribulation is when it's just men doing their thing, and the great tribulation is when God adds to it. Romans 1.24, God says that when people devote themselves to weird, aberrant sins like idolatry or homosexuality, he gives them over. He says, fine. Have it your way. And that permission is the judgment upon them. 
says it ravishes and warps their minds and dishonors their bodies as they abase themselves below what God created them to be. That's what judgment is a lot of times. It's God giving you what you want. So pray in faith. I mean, if you're going to pray for something that you can confidently say is God's will, don't even sweat it. But if you want something and, and you're not sure if it's something you should have, just stop. God, is there a reason why you've denied me this? I firmly believe that some people are poor because they could not handle being rich. And I firmly believe some people are rich because God knows the best chance for them to be a godly man is to not have to deal with poverty. It would be too much for them. I believe there are some people in the prison that we meet that are doing great spiritually in prison. But as soon as they get out, they just can't handle it. And for some of them, some of them, that's exactly where they need to be. It's the best thing for them. Sometimes restraint is a good thing. Have you ever gotten what you wanted only to get over it later? Haven't you ever done that? You want something so desperately, then you finally get it, and you're like, that was a mistake. When you sin, you can always tell, because as soon as it's over, it just all collapses in on you. When you finish sinning, you don't go, wow, I can't wait to do that again. You go, what is wrong with me? That's, that's what sin feels like. It's never satisfying. But the devil tricks you into saying, well, next time, we'll do a little more, and that'll satisfy you. And that's how you get addictions. You ever have it hurt you? You ever finally get with that guy that you wanted, and he hurts you? You ever finally get with that gal, and she wrecks everything? See, now I know why God was holding me back. The lesson is to trust that God has given you exactly what you need. And I'm leaving, of course, legitimate prayer to the side, of which you know I'm a major proponent but God's going to say, I'm going to give you guys what you want, and they're not going to like it. Look at verse 21. Again, not Moses' finest hour. But Moses said, the people among whom I am, number 600,000 on foot, that's the soldiers. So we're looking at probably two to three million people here. And you said, I'll give them meat that they may eat a whole month. Shall flocks and herds be slaughtered for them and be enough for them? Or shall all the fish of the sea be gathered together for them and be enough for them? Moses is getting sarcastic with God. That kind of makes you want to step back a little bit, doesn't it? And the Lord said to Moses, is the Lord's hand shortened? Now you shall see whether my word will come true for you or not. Moses is skeptical of God's ability to provide meat for the millions of people for a month. This is a problem a lot of armies have. Armies march on their stomachs, it says. And if you can't feed them, it doesn't matter how many soldiers you have. Moses is like, we got three million people here and you want to feed them all for a month with meat, which already is a rare commodity. God goes, do you, do you think that I can't? This is very similar to the disciples in Mark 6. Lord, 5,000 men and their families are here, and it's getting late, and if they don't leave now, they won't have time to get back into the villages to buy their food. And Jesus goes, well, you feed them. And they go, we feed them. What do you want us to do? If we, and then, you know, the nerd and the disciples group is like, well, we had 300 denarii, we couldn't feed this people. And Jesus said, well, what do you got? Said, We've got five loaves and two fishes. Well, bring me that. What about the captain in 2 Kings chapter 7 during the siege of Samaria where Elisha is there and they, they, it's so bad that the people are starting to eat their own children. And they go to Elisha, and Elisha says that this time tomorrow, food is going to be so cheap, it's going to be selling for nothing. They were buying and eating donkey heads. That was the delicacy of the day. He says, tomorrow, it's all going to be cheap because there's going to be so much. 
And the captain of the guard says to him, even if God opened the windows of heaven, that couldn't happen. That's skepticism, right? That's doubt. (laughs) James says, he who doubts shouldn't expect to get anything from God. And God rebukes Moses. Elijah rebuked the captain of the guard too. And he said, you're going to see it, but you're not going to eat any of it. And the people were so hungry, they trampled the captain of the guard in their desperation to get to the food, and he was killed. God says, I've got no limits, Moses. I am able to provide meat just like I was able to provide manna and water from a rock. And he uses that Hebraic phase. My arm is not shortened. It's not out of my reach. Didn't you see all that stuff I did in Egypt? Didn't you see the Red Sea? And Moses isn't even upset about the food. He's upset about these people. Leaders can let the people get to them. And it affects how they deal with the Lord. So you've got to find Jesus first every day if you're in charge of somebody. You've got to start your day with Jesus. And do it every day. Anybody else found that if you miss your devotions for like two to three days in a row, you're in serious trouble? Sometimes as leaders, we can assume that because the situation is impossible, it must not be God's will. My friends, that is not the case. It is when we are most desperate that you can see the most miraculous interventions of God. If things are hopeless, then it's prime time for a miracle. And sometimes your perception of the situation is wrong. If we, if we go past this line, we'll never make it. God goes, yeah, you will. I've got you, man. Watch how far I can stretch this. Watch how far I can stretch this deadline. Watch how far I can stretch this illness. Watch how far I can stretch this teensy little bank account. Like the widow's oil, right? He says, just keep pouring it out. Just keep on pouring. I didn't say stop. Keep on it. The Lord often waits until there's only one left before he steps in and asks for some. Like Elijah, the widow had one last portion of oil and he said, hey, could you make me something? Isn't that what God does? He lets you get all the way to the bottom and he says, that that belongs to me. Lord, then I won't have anything. He goes, then I guess I'll have to pay you back. And that's wonderful. That's a different perspective. That's a George Mueller perspective. George Mueller who ran an orphanage with like no money. They would just pray and food would show up. Go read his biography. It's incredible. They would sit the kids down for breakfast Pray and thank the Lord for the food, which they did not have. And while they're praying, somebody knocks on the door, says, hey, my bread truck uh, broke down across the street. Y'all need some food? And he says, after a while, these things became so common, we stopped being surprised by them. Never attribute your shortcomings to God. I couldn't do this, so God must not be able to. We've got to shake ourselves loose of that. This materialist view of the world. We believe in God, do we not? Is God's arm shortened? No, of course not. God can do anything. And people mock, it, mock you and laugh at you and scold you. That's not taking the situation seriously. You're like, no, I'm including every piece of the puzzle, including the biggest one, which is our Lord. Moses needed to decrease again in his own heart until only the Lord remained. Verse 24, very interesting story. So Moses went out and told the people the words of the Lord, and he gathered 70 men of the elders of the people and placed them around the tent. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke to him and took some of the spirit that was on him and put it on the 70 elders. And as soon as the spirit rested on them, they prophesied. Underline this now, but they did not continue doing it. 
Now two men remained in the camp, one named Eldad and the other named Medad, and the spirit rested on them. They were among those registered, but they had not gone out to the tent, and so they prophesied in the camp. And a young man ran and told Moses, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the assistant of Moses from his youth, said, My Lord Moses, stop them! But Moses said to him, Are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit on them. And Moses and the elders of Israel returned to the camp. So Moses gathers all 70 elders. Well, actually, he calls 70 and only 68 show up. But God's not going to let them get out of it. They show up and the Holy Spirit comes upon them in power. A portion of the Spirit that was on Moses goes upon these people. And isn't it interesting how the Bible talks about portions of the Spirit? Elisha says, I need a double portion of your Spirit. New Testament says that God gives the Spirit without measure. So some people get kind of bent out of shape. Of course, we know that the Holy Spirit is personal. He is God, very God. And some people don't like using certain terminology like being full of the Spirit or having a portion of the Spirit, but that is biblical terminology. So just use the terminology that God uses. And it says they prophesied. Now, this could be any number of things. This prophesying is a broad thing in Scripture. It's probably a similar experience to what happened in Acts chapter 2 or Acts chapter 10 when the Spirit fell upon them and it said they spoke in tongues and prophesied. I read one uh, commentator who is a cessationist, meaning he does not believe in the gift of tongues functioning today, but he said it is almost certain that this was the same, he uses the boring term glossolalia, as we saw in Acts chapter 2, and it means speaking in tongues. 1 Samuel 10.10, Saul shows up to a group of prophets, and when he gets close, the Spirit catches catches him, and he begins to prophesy. And they go, is Saul a prophet too? These these rushing upon experiences of the Spirit. We need to remember that that is absolutely biblical. These, to use a biblical term, these ecstatic experiences that we have are not to be frowned upon or rejected or worked up in an emotional state. But we don't resist it when the Lord comes upon them. But they didn't ever do this again, which might seem incredulous. Like, you can't tell me that somebody had the Spirit of God come upon them and then they didn't do anything with it. Happens every day. Happens every day. It's happened to you. How many Christians have experienced the Holy Spirit in a radical, dynamic way and then just gone right back to normal life? How many people encounter God at church and they're broken down and weeping and then they just skip it next time? Like, how could you go anywhere else? How many people have been miraculously healed by the Lord and they don't change their life one bit? How many people have been told in no uncertain terms what they have to do, confirmed in their heart, confirmed in the word, confirmed by their friends around them, and they do nothing with it? This happens all the time. It's a heartbreaking thing. Two elders who did not attend, Eldad and Medad, they prophesied in the camp alone. I wonder what that was like. They weren't praying. They weren't, you know, focusing on the Lord and trying to make something happen. They were probably just going about their day, eating their manna, and all of a sudden the Spirit rushed upon them and they began to prophesy. I'm sure Mrs. Eldad was rather freaked out by that. But Joshua heard about it and he wanted them stopped. Why? They're not at the tabernacle. That's where holy things happen. That's been the attitude of every established church and every time of revival throughout history. This is the way God works. God goes, I work how I work. 
I do what I do. If it's me, then it's of me. But Moses refused to be jealous. We got to learn that as leaders. You got to refuse to be jealous. Even when other people are jealous for you, like John the Baptist, again, whose disciples said, Jesus and his disciples are baptizing more people than you. What are we going to do about this? John the Baptist said, he must increase and I must decrease. Moses knew that God always desires to raise up leaders. But Moses knew, as I have learned in my time, God calls tons of leaders and most of them don't respond. God has called more people to be pastors through my ministry than you would believe. Most of them don't heed the call. Most don't. So learn how Jesus said he was making a different point, but it still applies. Many are called, but few are chosen. Many people said, I'll follow you, Lord, wherever you go. But at the first sign of trouble, they went on home. Many people who are like, I was in the spirit and we were in that meeting. And God said, you're going to be a pastor. You're going to be a missionary. I'm calling you to do this. And then you get in the car and you turn on a few podcasts and you go home and you eat some Lucky Charms and you go to bed and you wake up the next morning and you think to yourself, ah, that wasn't real. That's why God calls lots of people. In fact, Moses said, I wish God would put his spirit upon all of his people. You know what's so cool? You live in the day that Moses was wishing for, where God has poured out his spirit on all flesh. Acts chapter 2 was the fulfillment of Joel chapter 2, when he said, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, and they shall prophesy. You have to interpret Joel in the context in which he wrote, which is this right here. He didn't say, I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh, and they will preach. They will prophesy, dream dreams, have visions, the full Old Testament prophetic experience. And Peter said, this is that. These are the days of the prophet Joel. Every believer has been given a miraculous gift from the Lord. Prophecy tongues, preaching, administration, and wisdom. 1 Corinthians 12 says each one has been given the manifestation of the Holy Spirit. Paul would make sure that believers had received the Holy Spirit. Acts 19.2, he meets some folks that he hasn't discipled, and he says, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they go, I have no idea what you're talking about, Paul. I've never even heard of that before. And Paul goes, well, we're going to stop right now. He actually, what he asks him is, well, then how are you baptized? So if you don't know who the Holy Spirit is, there's something up with your baptism. And he says, all right, you, you know John? I'm going to tell you what Jesus had to say. Jesus was the one that John talked about. And they laid hands on him and they received the Holy Spirit. If you've not been baptized with the Holy Spirit, you need to be. You need to have those in the church lay hands on you and pray for the power of the Holy Spirit to come upon you. Far too many, though, have that experience, receive gifts from the Spirit, and then don't do anything with them. They sit on their gifts especially in our tradition, not in all traditions, but in ours, especially the gift of tongues. I feel like every person that I've ever prayed for who received the gift of tongues, they sit on it. They don't tell anybody about it. They don't use it in the church. And they say, well, I think it's just something for me and God. Don't be selfish. All things have been given to us for the edification of the body of Christ. How many people have been called to preach and don't preach? How many people have been gifted to encourage and they skip out of church as soon as the pastor says amen? How many people have been gifted to evangelize but they're too busy using those skills in the workplace? The Lord has given you that, that ability, that power from the Spirit. 
for the edification of the body. Whether you're afraid or embarrassed, you need to get over it. S.M. Lockridge, one of my favorite quotes, he said, sophistication is sucking the life out of our religion. The desire to appear sophisticated, be respectable, to have those outside the church look at you and say, well, that's the kind of religion I can get behind. That's good. You know, the kind of church where unbelievers feel perfectly safe and welcome to come and never be challenged to be saved. That nobody's ever going to come in and say, God is here. Sophistication is sucking the life out of our religion. Let me tell you, friends, it is not maturity to read the Bible and ignore the Spirit. Some people treat it that way. When I first got saved, it was all gospel and the Spirit was on me and it was wonderful. But now that I've grown up, I know that it's really just about studying the Bible and, and getting in the Word, and I've left all that behind. Then you're not reading the Bible properly because the Bible tells you to Delight yourself in the Lord. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. He says, do not forbid speaking in tongues and do not despise prophecies. He says, having gifts, therefore, according to the varied grace of God, let us use them. So you can't hold up the Bible in opposition to the spirit, Calvary Chapel churches, because the Bible tells us to, to wait upon the spirit and use the gifts we've been given. But that's how the game that Satan plays. He says, mature Christians are scholars Immature Christians are spiritual. False. That's absolutely false. We must receive the baptism and filling of the Holy Spirit. What's the difference? Baptism happens one time. Filling happens over and over and over as many times as you need it. This is one reason why we see so few great men of God raised up. They'd rather be teachers and scholars instead of prophets and holy men. The Lord has really been working on me with this, you guys. I've been telling Steve today, I've been doing my devotions one verse at a time through the Beatitudes. I spent, you know, an hour and a half meditating on blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. You know why? Because I don't like that verse. I don't like it. I'm not a meek person by temperament. My Myers-Briggs is way on the opposite end of meek. <laughs> But Jesus said, they shall inherit the earth. And as I sat there, just, I mean, like wrestling, like, Lord, why did you have to say this one? I want to inherit the earth and I want to do what's right. But Lord, I don't want to be meek. And then God, I just, as you're sitting there wrestling and meditating on it, it just opens up in your mind. And in that moment, the Lord reminded me, he's like, Tyler, this is what I need from you to be waiting upon me and listening to me and hearing my voice and have something to say that you didn't just get out of your study, which I approve and pray that you'll continue to do, but that you got from direct communion with my Holy Spirit. That's what's needed now. You must be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Acts 2.38, Peter told him, this is for you and your children and all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. And you must be filled again with the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 5.18, Paul gave us a present imperative. Be filled with the Holy Spirit, which tells us that at some level, being filled with the Spirit is on you. Because is the Spirit going to say, nope, I'm not going to fill you today? <laughs> Is that what our God does? The Bible says our God is a good father, knows how to give good gifts, and won't he give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? The church needs spiritual people. This church needs spiritual people. I need spiritual people, not just scholars, not just planners, not just administrators who are good at those things in the flesh, but people that are alive and vibrant with the Spirit of God. That's what Moses needed. And unfortunately, 
He would have to go it alone for a while. But we don't have to because the hope of Moses has been fulfilled in your days. Isn't that awesome? Levi Lesko put it this way. You are living out dead men's dreams. I love that so much. We get to live in the now. We get to live in the fulfillment of these things. I could talk about just that, and I kind of would like to, but let's finish the chapter. Then a wind from the Lord sprang up, and it brought quail from the sea. That would be the Red Sea, the Gulf of Aqaba. And let them fall beside the camp, about a day's journey on this side, and a day's journey on the other side, around the camp, and about two cubits, three feet, above the ground. And the people rose all that day, and all night, and all the next day, and gathered the quail. Those who gathered least gathered ten homers, six bushels. You ever been apple picking? Six of those things. And they spread them out for themselves all around the camp. That's how they would, they would prepare them. They would dry them, and then they would salt them, and that's how they would eat the meat. While the meat was yet between their teeth, before it was consumed, the anger of the Lord was kindled against the people, and the Lord struck down the people with a very great plague. Therefore, the name of that place was called Kibroth Hata'ava, because there they buried the people who had the craving. That name, Kibroth Hata'ava, means graves of craving. God provides them a whole mess of quail. And there is a parallel between the spirit that came upon them and the wind that blew. Both words in Hebrew is ruach. Just as how the Lord parted the Red Sea with a great wind that blew, remember? Now, quail are common in this part of the world, but this was a super abundance of poultry. Miles around, as far as you could walk in one day, in both directions, piled three feet high. Everybody gathered at least six bushels. So they spread them out and they go to eat them. But as they begin to eat, God sent a plague among them. And many of them were killed. This is divine food poisoning. Now why is that? Because it was wrong to eat meat? Hadn't he sent it to them? No, because of their attitude. Their gluttonous, craving attitude. Every time this passage is referred to in Scripture, in 1 Corinthians and in the Psalms and elsewhere, that word craving, it's almost like lust inordinate desire. Psalm 106 says, they believed the Lord's words, they sang his praise, but they soon forgot his works and they did not wait for his counsel. But they had a wanton craving in the desert and, God, and put God to test in the desert. He gave them what they asked, but sent a wasting disease among them. There was no gratitude. Thank you, Joe. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for doing this. No humility, as in, what were we complaining for? God can do anything. No repentance. Forgive us, Lord. At least the people that Samuel spoke to that asked for a king, at least they repented and wanted to take it back. They were just a bunch of devouring mouths. They, they did not see that God was shaming them by providing this for them. They should have poured it out, like when David poured out the water from the well that his soldiers had brought to him. And so God judges them for it. This is kind of how Jesus did in John 6. He had fed the 5,000 and they kept following him. And in John 6, 54, in order to sort out who was just hungry and who really wanted to know the truth, he said, if you want to eat something, you can eat my flesh and drink my blood. And if you don't, you can't go to heaven. And they said, that's disgusting. He goes, nope, I'm telling you for real. You've got to, I mean, the Greek is pretty explicit. You've got to chew on my food and feed on my blood. This is, this is really weird. And he didn't explain it. 
It's very similar to what's happening here. Perhaps you can see now why God withheld the meat from them in the first place. He knew that they were obsessed with luxury. And feeding somebody who is obsessed and addicted is only going to make it worse. Isn't that true? Your brother's an alcoholic. You're not doing him a favor by taking him out for a drink, are you? God knew that. For this reason, God will withhold things for, uh, from us or let us have them for a while so that they'll break us and we will despise them afterwards. 1 Corinthians 5, 5, they said, pray that this sinner will be delivered over to his own sin for the destruction of his flesh that his soul may be saved. Meaning, may he go out there, sin it up, crash and realize I never should have done that. Because if he won't listen to you, this is the only thing that's going to get his attention. And many, many have died at the graves of craving. Your attitude before and after a blessing matters to God. You're never to complain. We shouldn't allow each other to complain. But to be full of gratitude and petition our Lord humbly. If you need something, you go to God and ask. He'll give it to you. But don't come in complaining. Your kids ever come in demanding something and you say, how about you go out of the room, come back in and try that again? Verse 35, we end here. From Kibroth, Hata'ava, the people journeyed to Hazarot, and they remained at Hazarot. They're halfway there. The journey to the promised land is a tough one because the discipline and depravity of the wilderness will push you to exactly where you need to grow. When you're all alone in the desert, that's when you learn where you're weak. And that's never a pleasant process. And it's especially unpleasant for the leaders who have to try to shepherd the people of God to the pearly gates. And Jesus said that there are few that find it. We're going to see far more people fall away than we are going to see actually make it there. And Satan is constantly trying to deceive us into longing for the onions of slavery rather than heaven. But Paul said, do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Don't complain be actively content. Trust the Lord. And if you need something, ask for it. And the greatest example of somebody who receives something wonderful from the Lord and treats it as a common thing later is the baptism and filling of the Holy Spirit. Have you been baptized with the Spirit? Are you walking in His power now? Do you need to come and get on your knees? I'll tell you, if you do that, the first place God is going to take you is to the last place you got hung up. I'm glad you're back. Have you done the thing I asked you to do last time? Well, God, can't we move past that? No, you can't. God will not be mocked. God will not be put off. And he will not be ignored. If we're going to get through this desert and learn contentment and wisdom, we need our great helper that was promised to us by the Lord Jesus Christ. And when you are walking in the spirit, that's when you realize how ridiculous it is to say, at least we had onions. Onions. 